This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Rachel Withers, contributing editor to The Monthly, discusses the latest in federal politics. The next interview you'll hear is with wildlife cinematographer Nick Hayward and behavioural ecologist Dr Anastasia Dalziel. Known as the cinematographer who filmed the famous clip of a lyrebird mimicking a chainsaw in David Attenborough's The Life of Birds, Nick Hayward deploys his cinematography skills once again in a new documentary directed by Mark Pierce called The Message of the Lyrebird. Anastasia Dalziel, alongside other cast members, contributes her expertise to explore the brilliant mimicry of the lyrebird in Australia a bird known to mimic the songs of other birds in the forest, as well as other animals and, maybe, sounds from a human source. Then, finally, artist and writer Georgia Mill joined me to discuss her new podcast, A Fluorescent Feeling. Georgia's podcast explores people's lived experiences of pain, illness and disability. The series asks how we might record pain in new ways, how pain intersects with power, and how pain and intimacy are related. And now moving on to a topic that is nothing like Radiothon, it is Australian politics. And uh, it is very important, just like Radiothon, but in a different way. So I'm really pleased to welcome back onto the program Rachel Withers, who is the contributing editor at The Monthly, and she joins me again to talk all things federal politics. Hey there, Rachel, and how are you doing in your lockdown part of the woods? Hi, Amy. Yep, you know, uh, it's starting to feel very, very normal being in lockdown at this point, which is not a good sign, but uh, yeah, just getting through it. Yeah, I think I remarked the other day, I'm starting to feel a bit desensitised to lockdowns and when they're announced, I'm just like, okay, cool. Yep. 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 <laughs> we know how it's done. I can do that. But then it does get a bit old, doesn't it? Pretty quickly. Yes, it does. Yeah. Well, it's great that you have um, a lovely canine companion at least to spend it with isn't it (laughs) I hope she's quiet today yeah oh she's been really well behaved the last few shows so I'm really I'm very pleased and impressed with her wonderful manners (laughs) so let's get into federal politics Rachel which is something that you uh, obviously cover very very frequently and you write your columns for the monthly and there's been a lot of topics of discussion, but it seems like the general theme that we've been following for so long is COVID-19. But before we jump into that, because I know we'll go into many areas, I did want to just quickly talk about Afghanistan, which uh, myself and Emma Short has discussed uh, last week for a little bit, but there's a lot more that's developed since then. And it is uh, a very, very problematic issue right now in terms of Australia's previous involvement and also current involvement in trying to get uh, Australian citizens and also those who assisted us in Afghanistan, those um, locals in Afghanistan, out. And obviously it's not just an Australian issue, it's a US issue as they're the ones who uh, initiated the whole um, withdrawal from Afghanistan and also the decision to go there uh, alongside its allies like Australia and the UK. So um, let's just take a look at that, given the current issues and the deadline, which is really approaching uh, of August 31. Yeah, well, um, I mean, the, there's been some efforts by the US to try to have that 
deadline extended and, and other countries pushing the US to try to get that deadline extended as well. Um, it doesn't look, at, at this stage, it's not it's not looking likely that it, it will be extended. Um, but there is obviously still, you know, the US should be able to get its people out by then, but there's a range of, as you say, um, Afghan nationals uh, who are owed support uh, or, you know, Owed, owed our assistance after helping us who are still unable to get out. Um, there are Australian citizens who are unable to reach the airport. We've been hearing some um, really awful stuff this morning um, of, of some of the Australian citizens who are registered to come back but just can't reach the airport. Um, so it's, yeah, the, the situation on the ground there is very, very difficult. The number of people we have evacuated is increasing. We are hearing, you know, solid numbers each day, uh, which is nice after that first flight only flew out, I think it was 26 people. Um, yeah. But certainly for some people who who should be able to, to get on a flight um, and come to Australia, uh, they can't even reach the airport at this stage. Mm, and there's... Uh, there was an article that's just been published that says that uh, another 650 people have been evacuated as part of Australia's rescue operation. So, I mean, it's good that clearly the numbers are increasing and obviously it's not just Australia, there's New Zealand who have also managed to land at Kabul Airport and rescue um, more of their people as well. Um, one thing that I found really concerning and that you've just mentioned there and that was featured on uh, radio this morning, particularly um, ABC's RN Breakfast, there were actually uh, some really great first-hand accounts from Australian citizens in Afghanistan who have only obviously been able to give their first name due to security concerns. Um, but one such person called Mustafa said that uh, he has been trying to get out of his um, area for days and days. He's registered to leave. He can't get assistance. He called the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Australia's department, and they honestly offered him no solution. Uh, and he is very, very concerned about even leaving his house. He thinks that he could be um, particularly targeted where he is at the moment and isn't sleeping. I mean, these are really concerning things and one that really highlighted the situation and just how it's coming down to luck at the moment is that uh, a person called I am her brother-in-law uh, because they were struggling to get to the airport to get past any of the checkpoints actually ran out and found an Australian soldier and asked that Australian soldier to help them get out. And actually that was the only reason they managed to get to the airport in the end was because of one Australian soldier's um, initiative. So, I mean, mm. this sounds like not particularly coordinated. I mean, it sounds like the actual rescue from the airport is, but actually getting people to the airport and ensuring that they're on the flight seems like it's not particularly well coordinated yeah no and I hadn't heard that one about the Australian soldier on the ground and and I guess that's a one you know nice story I suppose amongst all these horrible ones but we did hear the Prime Minister say last week in a press conference that we wouldn't be running a rescue mission that actually sends our forces out from the airport to help get people in um, and that basically 
you know, his words were more or less that, you know, it's just not worth the risk. Um, well, which, yeah. what do you think though? I mean, it's, it's interesting because we had seen some like shots fired and an American soldier had killed um, an Afghani because there was kind of enemy fire and they didn't know where it was coming from. So there is some tension on the ground and some, you know, uncertainty around whether the level of peace that exists right now will remain as such until the deadline that the Taliban has promised, which is to enable that level of movement um, and to, you know, minimise any blockades up until August the 31st. So if there was a hypothetical window for Australia to do anything, you would think it would be now. But do you think maybe it's kind of convenient to say, oh, we just won't risk it, knowing that so many won't actually even be able to get to the airport? Well, look, I imagine it's it's about not wanting to inflame the situation anymore. But whether now is the final, you know, window to help actually get people to the airport or whether that's actually passed, I think it speaks to the fact that Australia pulled its people out. It it closed its embassy early, um, mm, in May. and it and it got out. It it took you know its own people out. And Morrison's bragged about that about how early we did that. But it means that we've got no one on the ground there able to help, and that to send people in is is sending people into a dangerous situation, um, because we've just got no one there. I'm yeah. It's interesting, um, though, because I think some people would just assume based on the Prime Minister's rhetoric that these aren't Australian citizens and the people he's talking about includes Australian citizens. They're not limited to, but they are definitely inclusive of Australians. So you would think if you were, you know, to take a risk, um, a country would make efforts for its own citizens at the absolute minimum and then I think they should personally um, make efforts for those who assisted us. But, you know, is there some kind of duty that's owed on for from a government to its citizens when, you know, a, a state becomes failed or has this kind of upheaval and, and Australia has an ongoing role in and part to play in that country in terms of what it's done in the last 20 years? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I think there's been a lot of talk about moral obligations here um, and whether to our own citizens or to the people that helped. Um, there's obligations we had and have. It's just, you know, have we now left it too late to even safely or feasibly fulfil those obligations? It's not clear. Mm. Well, I guess we'll only know if we try. It's mm. good that one Australian soldier did try. Yeah. Um, so, this is something clearly that will be ongoing given that we've got up until August 31st and, as you said, the Taliban don't seem that they're going to be changing their minds um, and their spokesperson today said that there's a very red line that's not going to be past that red line of August the 31st. So, mm. yeah, it's pretty pretty worrying for those people there and you can tell in their voices that they're obviously really stressed and anxious. Um Moving to COVID-19, which is something that every country around the world is struggling with and has clearly been struggling with for, gosh, I don't even know how long now, a very long time. And in Australia, I think many people thought and were told by politicians, oh, well, we just need the vaccine. Once we get the vaccine, everything will be, you know, tickety-boo and things will go back to normal. Um 
probably isn't that black and white, uh, unfortunately. And we are seeing just how grey that scenario is because, as we've discussed, you and myself on previous occasions, uh, clearly the federal government did not procure enough vaccine supply and also not enough um, in terms of the diversity of choices that it procured. Um, so we really did limit ourselves to about three uh, that were ended up being viable and a couple that ended up not yet being viable. Um, and so that's obviously a, a basic point that all the premiers are currently making is I just don't have the supply. Uh, and then, of course, with vaccination targets, this has become another sticking point, uh, which I'm not really surprised has emerged, given that we are now very much experiencing the full effects of the Delta variant in the ACT in Victoria and in New South Wales. Of course, other states have also been dealing with it at different points as well. So where are we currently at, if you possibly can, Rachel? I know it's a <laughs> massive, massive question, but where are we at in this um, current debate in terms of that state and federal relationship on vaccination targets and modelling? Yeah, look, you mentioned there that, that um, the the vaccination path out of this isn't black and white and it, it never was, but it especially isn't now that we have this um, multiple outbreaks across the country, but in particular the New South Wales outbreak. Um, so the vaccination targets to, to sort of end major restrictions and to move into phases B and C and D, as we're calling them, uh, were agreed to by the National Cabinet based on Doherty Institute modelling. Um, but a bit of a skirmish broke out last week over, I guess, whether those thresholds, the 70 and 80% that we're talking to that get us to phases B and C, um, and that's of the adult population, which actually works out to be more like 56% of the total population. But, yeah, whether those can still be applied um, given the New South Wales outbreak, given we're not going to be going in uh, with the, the low case numbers that we managed to maintain um, for, I guess, the first half of this year. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, there's been, I guess, the... Um, as we've always had disagreements about when to use a lockdown and... and um, you know, how, how hard to suppress versus eliminate, that's now sort of spilled out into this conversation about how safely basically we need to go into the next phase, like how how under control the cases should be. Um, the Prime Minister has come down really hard on the side of, no, we're sticking with this 70 and 80, um, and he's been pushing back against premiers, generally Labor premiers, uh, with um, states that are used to having no cases, um, pushing back against them, saying that, no, we won't uh, fully let go of lockdowns at 70 and 80% vaccination. Um, and he's been, you know, everybody's arguing about the Doherty Institute modelling and what it actually means and what it actually says. Yeah, well, let's just, you mentioned there something interesting and it's something my uh, lovely Perth guest who comes on this show quite regularly, Professor Mary Louise McLaws, um, has mentioned and discussed, and um, people can check back on the podcast if they're interested in this particular area. But as you said, the National car, uh, Cabinet targets, which were based on the Doherty's modelling um, of 70% and 80% of the eligible adult population, which is 16 years and over, those vaccination 
vaccination thresholds actually equate to 56%. Um, so that's the 70%. And then 64% of the total population. And um, so obviously that's one in two Australians will be vaccinated once you get to uh, the 70% threshold and two in three will be vaccinated once you get to 80%. So there's still a number of people who are left without coverage. And I guess the arguments at the moment seem to be that children uh, are being infected very much disproportionately uh, as compared with older adults. And part of that is because they are clearly unvaccinated and older adults have had some chance already to get their vaccinations, either their first and or second doses. And then also um, there's an argument around, uh, you know, should we be giving everyone the ability to actually access a vaccine first before we start to lift these restrictions? And there's a, a kind of argument about equity, fairness, and also um, a moral obligation to our population to enable them to be protected before we just kind of uh, let things fly open. So I thought it might be worthwhile to even just mention the case numbers yesterday in Victoria to illustrate for our listeners here what we're talking about. So of the 494 active cases uh, in Victoria as of yesterday, 112 of them were aged under 10, so from zero to nine years. 100 cases were aged between 10 and 19 years. 79 cases were in their 20s. And uh, of 29 that are in hospital, 21 of them are aged uh, under 50. And there's one um, infant child in that group as well. So we're talking about a very, very different effect on children than we've seen from previous variants. So I wonder when we're seeing this debate going on uh, and people really, including the ACT uh Chief Minister pointing out that children should have the opportunity to be vaccinated, at least the 12 to 15-year-olds. You know, what do you think is going on there? Do you think the, the Prime Minister is kind of ignoring the effect on children and concerns of parents and the concerns of the ACT uh, Chief Minister and others? Do you think there, um, that there is any kind of back and forth dialogue on this or that there's all this kind of, or is there a bit of grandstanding going on? Yeah, um, Look, I, I think that it's assumed by the Prime Minister and, and those who are really pushing the Doherty plan uh, that, you know, that um, the reason children weren't considered as much is because it doesn't affect children to the same extent. Um, you know, no child has died from COVID in Australia. I think things could really change if case numbers got so high when we open up that... Um, you know, it, it would be a very, very small number of children who, uh, proportion of children who were infected who actually uh, got very sick or even died. But the more cases we get, the more likely that that eventuality will occur. Um, I think what is part of the Doherty Institute modelling that's being missed by both sides, both um, the Prime Minister pushing hard for it and states starting to pull back from it, is that it does assume that um, there will still be restrictions, there will still be public health measures. Uh, the Doherty Institute tweeted out last night sort of its um, its kind of response to everything that's going on and it, it noted, you know, with partial public health measures, we're expecting 
this many cases and this many deaths with optimal, I think it was about uh, 1,457 cases um, over six months, sorry, deaths over six months with partial uh, health measures. And then with optimal public health measures, it would be 13 deaths. So there is an assumption built in there that we will actually keep this under control and that it, and that it won't uh, be allowed to spread like wildfire, but it's it's really hard to see how that would be possible without any children vaccinated at all. Um, well, there would be um, some who are vaccinated who are in special categories. Um, but, yeah, with the vast majority of children, which, you know, when you hear that 70% drop down to 56%, you realise it's a really large group of people. Um, yeah, it's hard to see how it's those case numbers would be kept in check. Um, and I think, yeah, there's just a lot of assumptions going on, um, a lot of, as you say, grandstanding. Um, the Prime Minister's really keen to, to have this message now about coming out from the cave and, um, you know, the end to lockdowns, but we're not really talking about the nuances of, you know, do we know what kind of public health measures we're all willing to tolerate, you know, for the foreseeable future to keep those Doherty Institute numbers uh, the Doherty Institute modelling um, at the at the safer, lower end of case numbers. And is that even the goal? You know, with how much states have had different approaches to lockdowns, I'm sure they're going to have different approaches to public health measures moving forward. Mm, well, there's been, you know, stark contrasts between states and we've seen it all play out uh, on the national stage. And, I mean, that is true to say that when we all got presented with this modelling and these slides and we had a special slideshow presentation and Scott Morrison got up on the podium and was all very proud about these special graphs that the Doherty had <laughs> produced and it was kind of a very, like, theatrical situation. Um, really, there was no opportunity for the population to discuss, debate, uh, not the modelling and whether we agree with it, but actually the assumptions that underpin the modelling, which are, as you say, different types of public health measures, how many deaths um, are acceptable to the Australian population. How much potentially disabling chronic illness that will never go away are we happy to accept when there are high levels of COVID and thousands getting long COVID like they have in the UK and the US, uh, which also affects children? So these mm. are things that we should actually discuss. Um, and people will make these um, very unhelpful comparisons to the flu, like, oh, we have this many deaths every year from the flu, our health system deals with that all the time. Well, I mean, COVID-19 is a novel coronavirus that causes organ damage very extensively. Um, it can cause, as I've said, long COVID. Uh, it doesn't behave like the flu. Um, and we're seeing, obviously, the Delta variant be quite terrible, but we also, as the Doherty even pointed out, don't know what the next variant is going to be like. Mm -hmm. So we're all kind of dealing with all these uncertainties. And for, I guess, the Prime Minister to come out and say, look, I've got certainty, here's some modelling, uh, and, and the National Cabinet's just all decided to sign up to this modelling today, it seems like we were kind of just pushed to a point and told, here's your here's your answer, take it. I mean, do you think that's a, a kind of way to get people on board um, or do you think it might end up with a rude awakening if if those of us who are assuming certain certain kind of principles of public health will be followed and then they're not, you know, and we'll get upset 
by it. Like it just seems like a quite poor way to do public health policy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can I can see why the prime minister has decided to go um, go hard with you know the time to move forward towards the dawn rhetoric. Um, you know, yeah. he's he's decided <laughs> it's funny him. yesterday. Oh, yeah. Hastening towards the dawn. Oh god. Um, but you know. It sort of, it, in some respects, it makes sense for him to decide, right, by next, by the election next year, he wants us to be in this, this new living with it phase. Um, but yeah, as you know, we don't know what's around the corner. Um, we don't know what variant is coming next. You know, it, it does seem really short-sighted of the prime minister to just be like, yeah, we'll just, we'll just manage it. You know, because we don't know how manageable it's going to stay. Um, and so, yeah, you know, he's setting up certain expectations of this, like, pretty free life that who knows, he may have to walk back. He may, um, you know, he's flipped several times on being pro-lockdown or anti-lockdown. Um, mm. And, yeah, it's just more sort of short-term politics, I think. Um, he's often said, you know, with various things that have happened, you know, well, we can all be clever in hindsight, and he just never learns foresight. Um, no matter how many times the situation <laughs> changes on him. And he says, oh, you know, it's the, the virus that's changed. He still no. never thinks to plan ahead for when it changes again. Mm. Well, I just found, yeah, uh, it really shocking when even Gladys Berejiklian and the New South Wales Premier said, oh, we just didn't know how Delta would behave. Well, I'm like, you shut the border to India and Australian citizens from India because of the Delta variant. And we literally saw how it was behaving. So, you know, for us to just go, oh, I'm just so surprised that it's, you know, taken off and affected so many children, for example, when we literally saw that happening in the UK, uh, from zero to 19 year olds were driving the Delta variant transmission in the UK for months. So, you know, it is interesting to say that there is no hindsight, uh, that it's easier in hindsight, and there is no ability to to have foresight. But clearly, there are there are and were export experts uh, informing the public, informing the government. Do you think that perhaps um, a, that there needs to be more decision making led by expertise rather than political short termism, as you've mentioned? Is it because there's an election looming, and that the federal government is desperate to put itself in the right political position that it thinks it needs to to win, um, and especially given polling numbers? Yeah, look, I think I think they are listening to experts, or at least purporting to. I mean, we've got the Doherty Institute modelling being now held up as the be-all and end-all. And, you know, over the weekend and yesterday, Morrison was using this, like, new updated advice from the Doherty Institute. That to, was oral advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. to to, um, to push his claim that, no, 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 it's still fine, we can still go with the plan. Um, and then they were forced to to tweet out in the evening, or they, they released a statement and tweeted out as well, sort of backing him Um in a measured way, I'd say. Um, but, you know, there's all these expert opinions out there. And unfortunately now at this point, um, anybody can pull up whichever expert opinion, whichever modelling they like. There's some new modelling, some really dramatic modelling this morning from three academics from um, ANU, the University of Western Australia and the University of Melbourne that's, that's really quite dramatic and is calling for a 90% vaccination rate. Um, including children, um, and it's you know 
calling pointing out how many deaths we might have if we if we let go of all restrictions um you know at 80 um but the thing is you know everyone's just going to cling to the modeling that that supports their particular view on covid and and how covid should be managed i think um and so the prime minister's found his but you know how apolitical is that advice at this point i'm, I'm not casting aspersions on the doe institute but um yeah, like they've been sort of wrapped up now in the Prime Minister's agenda. Um, and it, it's, yeah, really troubling that they released that advice after he'd been out verbally communicating it and re refusing to actually table it. <laughs> yes. Well, Labor did actually ask, you know, please share this with the Parliament if you're going to mention it and say that, you know, this supports your position, uh, given that we all know the Doherty modelling was based around and had assumptions of a very low caseload of around 30 uh, cases of community transmission um, once a population had been vaccinated to 70% and 80% of the adult population. Obviously, we're nowhere near 30 or 40, even in one state at the moment. Um, so it is, you know, a worry. Uh, and then we did, as you said, see that the Doherty said, well, actually, even though that was our assumption, we don't think it will change things that much. Um, but, you know, as you said, uh, the, there are different models. Um, I don't think that any of them are particularly wrong. I think it's more about looking at what the assumptions are and what the values are that underpin the models. But one thing I have had put to me, which I found you know, quite compelling is that for measles, for example, it's a highly infectious virus. It's still very different from the coronavirus, obviously. Um, but because it's so infectious, it needs a coverage rate of about 92 to 94% um, of uptake in the population. Naturally, it's easier if you're if you're, you know, giving these vaccinations to children from an early age, um, because it's easier to build up that vaccination rate uh, progressively. But really, Australia has been achieving such a high level in the 90s of vaccination for some of these really concerning diseases that, you know, they're not having the effect that they used to. So it's not that we in Australia don't have the ability to do something like that if we put our minds to it. Uh, so I wonder whether it is that unrealistic when we've seen that it has been done before, whether or not it could be achieved in half a year is another thing. But I just wonder whether we need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Yeah, well, look, I think if we were to reach those kind of numbers, we're going to need further incentives, you know, and that's something that the government's already dismissed out of hand. Um, Except for gambling. <laughs> <laughs> when they were had the idea of it, what was it? TAB, a lottery, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but they, you know, they they have knocked back ideas. They they've decided not to go with mandating um, jabs, leaving that up to leaving that up to business. So again, it's this kind of short termism um, that they've already rejected certain ideas that might help us get to. The, those kind of really, you know, difficult to reach vaccination levels like 90 or 92 that you're talking about. Um, they seem happy to rest on their laurels at, you know, this 80 that we have to get to to get to phase D. But then, yeah, there's no there's no plan there. There's no mm. modelling for phase D. There's, there's no clear what kind of restrictions we're going to have to live with. Um, and, yeah, instead of throwing everything at this problem, you know, they're, they're playing politics a little bit with certain ideas.
Well, what is the alternative? Because Labor have put forward alternatives. Um, they're not clearly detailed yet, but there does seem to be a difference between Labor and Liberal. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think Labor was playing a little bit of politics as well with, with their suggestion of a $300 payment for a person to get vaccinated. But certainly, you know, we should all be discussing all the options and, um, you know, we don't want to do anything that's actually counterintuitive, you know, that's going to put people off getting vaccinated. But, um, you know, I think it just makes sense for the, everybody to be striving for the highest possible vaccination rate, because regardless of which modelling you look at, that's going to make life easier. Mm, mm. And uh, that uh, obviously we need to keep the end goal in focus, which is for everyone to have their life get some level of normalcy, some level of control, um, some level of financial security, uh, better mental well-being. So these are all things which we've all had a very clear-eyed focus on, uh, especially in Victoria, given how many days we've been in lockdown <laughs> since the start of the pandemic. Um, so, Rachel, maybe just to, to close out the discussion and, and look a little bit more at the politics, um, I just wanted to, I guess, bring back bring us back to this idea of um, the federation and the states, the state and federal governments and the way that they're interacting at the moment at National Cabinet, because this is what seems to be and will be really an, an ultimate deciding point or sticking point. Um, we have seen the ACT chief minister really put clearly his proposal, which is that uh, we should at least vaccinate 12 to 15-year-olds before we open up, before we lift any restrictions, um, and that's all of them, not just those who have a specific underlying health condition that qualifies or uh, those who are on the NDIS in that age bracket who've now just become eligible for Pfizer. So he's saying that would take an extra three weeks to vaccinate that population. Uh, Daniel Andrews has also said that Victoria wants to vaccinate as many children uh, as possible by the end of the year because of the summer holidays coming up. They don't want to see increased child transmission there. Um, and we've now seen New South Wales kind of um and ah over reopening schools, even though that was really a, a major focus for the Berejiklian government. And that's why we've seen uh, those year 11 and 12s getting priority Pfizer vaccinations. So, you know, with all this going on and states making their own decisions, but also putting to the national cabinet their own proposals, do you think this is going to reach any kind of um, head in, in terms of the, the argument or discussion? Because it, it does kind of feel like the Australian population is being dragged along, whether we like it or not, in this um, back and forth. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think ultimately, and we've seen this over and over again in COVID, states have the ultimate say over what they're going to do. There was supposed to be a national plan um, and, you know, for a couple of weeks there it felt like we had a national plan. Um, but, yeah, the states have always decided when they're going to lock down, when they're going to open up, you know, try as they might, the federal government hasn't been able to to get states to stay open or, or open up when it wants them to. Um, and so, yeah, it does feel like now all the states are on a different journey and in many ways it's, it's party political what they want to do, but it also depends on the circumstances. I think we're seeing here in Victoria Daniel Andrews very subtly shift his language towards um, the vaccination rate being the thing that's going to open us up. Because I think as Victoria 
maybe starts to grapple with the idea that we might not get ours back under control, you know, he's no longer holding to COVID zero in the same way that someone like Mark McGowan over in Western Australia is. So I think it's really dependent on states' circumstances, on what suits them best um, and what suits their citizens best and what's best in the long run for them. Obviously, we've seen that with New South Wales. The reason um, Berejiklian turned quite a while ago to vaccination rates was because she determined that it was not possible to get back to zero. Um, and so, yeah, I think, God, as as different states' outbreaks balloon or remain at zero, I think everyone's likely to bunker down into their their particular state position. Mm. It is interesting that we had that agreed upon, we'll all go to lockdowns, bef- but, you know, in the meantime, to try and keep the rate to zero or close to zero while we vaccinate our population so that we have the best chance of opening up. That was the agreed upon position. Um, Mark McGowan is that kind of outlier, isn't he, when he's kind of like, well, I want COVID zero pretty much forever, he kind of yeah, said. Yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure if he is saying that. I can't I can't work out what he's doing, but he's certainly not being clear enough about it. He intimates it, yeah, to his population, which is that I'll protect you. I've got all the, you know, hard borders, hard measures in place, um, even with, you know, Sydney siders now not going to be able to come back or anyone from Sydney or, or New South Wales to go into Western Australia at all, uh, even really for compassionate reasons. So he's kind of had that hard line just as he's got a hard line for the AFL grand final. <laughs> and some mm-hmm. of it is, as we've heard, posturing. Um, so it is hard to sort it out, but there does seem to be differences, at least in the messaging um, between those states and to see that even the plan to, you know, suppress the virus so that everyone will get a chance to have a vaccination before getting infected, hopefully, is not even um, necessarily a consensus position anymore. Yeah. And look, one thing I would just really like to see is, is every state leader come forward and say what they actually mean you know <laughs> I feel like we, we get Mark McGowan's position through his quotes but also through yeah. journalists repeatedly interpreting them and you know paraphrasing them and summarizing them and you know everybody's been painted into caricatures of their position and really I, I would just like to know whether Mark McGowan really does mean mean to maintain COVID zero forever or if he just means until we're all vaccinated um and, you know, what does the Prime Minister mean when he says about, you know, opening back up at 70A? What does he actually mean? So that would be really mm. helpful as someone trying to parse all of this. <laughs> yeah. Well, it does seem like a kind of basic feature of uh, politics is transparency and accountability. And it used to be a thing, I think. Um, but it's becoming so much harder, as you've just pointed out, for any journalist or even the general public to actually know what a politician is saying uh, and for even a journalist to be able to ask the question and even put a follow-up question to a politician on an issue to try and get clarity. So it would be good to see a bit of a change in the way that uh, this interaction or dance between media and politicians goes. Uh, but we'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Rachel, for joining me again and talking about some really complicated topics, which uh, I know that everyone is finding a bit overwhelming at the moment, but it is really critical to get our heads around it because um, clearly we're not going to get clarity from politicians. No, yes, it's been really helpful <laughs> chatting <laughs> chatting through this, you know, very, very weedy topic. Yeah. Well, good to chat with you again and I hope you're taking care in lockdown and uh, all the best. Likewise. Talk to you next time. 
This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. I'm so delighted to be joined by two wonderful guests, wildlife cinematographer Nick Hayward and behavioural ecologist Dr Anastasia Dalziel. They're both cast members and collaborators in a new documentary directed by Mark Pierce, which is called The Message of the Liarbird. And, uh, I mean, before lockdown happened in regional Victoria. Um, It was and I think still is planned, depending on whenever lockdown is extended to or not uh, in regional Vic. There is and was um, a screening planned for September the 12th, which is a fundraiser for the Goongarra Environment Centre in East Gippsland, which is so wonderful. We speak to them uh, quite a lot and have covered issues of the forests in East Gippsland, among others. Of course, naturally, we've spoken about the Central Highlands a lot as well. So we will update you as to when um, this, the screening does occur, but that doesn't matter for our conversation because we are going to be talking about the content of the film, um, obviously the way that it's filmed with um, Nick's cinematography and Anastasia's uh, great expertise in a scientific sense on the lyrebird. So uh, both are very much equipped to discuss these fascinating birds that are highly intelligent from what you can tell uh, in terms of their memory and ability to mimic different sounds, including other birds and other animals, for example. Uh, But we are going to jump in and talk about this topic, which I just can't wait. So I'm very, very pleased to welcome uh, you, Nick. Hi there, Nick Hayward. Hi there. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you for having me. pleasure. Thanks for coming on. And also, hello there, Anastasia Dalziel. Hi, Amy. It's great to be here. Thanks. Oh, I just, um, I've really, really loved watching this film and I don't say that lightly. It probably would have affected me even if we weren't in lockdown, but I think uh, I got a little teary watching this documentary because it was so moving to see how these birds interact, um, not just in the forest, but also between each other, by themselves, when they don't realise that Nick's camera is on them. Uh, It's just such a a wonderful thing and it brings a smile to your face uh, coming from my perspective as the viewer of the documentary. So uh, it was just a real joy to be able to watch this and to connect with a bird that is very kind of hard to see yourself if you're going on a, a, a walk. You can hear them everywhere. Um, as I did when I was in the Tulangi Forest a number of years ago. So I wanted to start from that point in terms of personal appreciation of the lyrebird and really um, speak to both of you about how you came to personally be interested in the lyrebird and appreciate its beauty and its brilliance. So uh, I'll start with you, Nick, as you open the film and really talk about your own connections in with the lyrebird. I think, uh, too, Amy, also the film's going to be shown in Hillsville. I don't know if you mentioned that. Uh, on the same date, the 12th of September, uh, at 2.30 and 4 p.m. Uh, at the Mimo, I think it's called, in Hills- Hillsville. Yep. And so uh, the audience can get a chance to see the film 
uh, then as well, at not just in Gippsland, as long as lockdown allows. If, yes, <laughs> where everyone in regional Victoria is crossing their fingers. Yeah, so, so that, that's a. But it, there's something about lyrebirds that uh, uh, it's it's their presence. I think that when you're in the forest, they've got such a powerful presence. Uh, it's not just the mimicry; it's the way they move, the the way they they sort of inhabit the forest. Uh, and there's something about them which it, it people do become obsessed by them, and I've certainly been obsessed. You know, I went out and did this film and, and spent weeks and weeks in the forest, really just to be with the lyrebirds. And I'm not the only one. There was uh, uh, a guy in the 30s, Tregalis, who who lived in a hollow log in the Sherbrooke Forest, uh, left his house, come, very comfortable house in Fitzroy and his wife, caught the train up to Belgrave every weekend and went and lived in the forest to be amongst the lyrebirds. Uh, and then we have a whole retinue of current people, uh, of which Anna's one, but we have Alex Maisie, uh, Vicky Austin and Matt Chamont, people who dedicate their time to the lyrebirds. And I, I, I don't know, it's hard to describe what it is. It, it's, there's something about their presence, their sound, the way they look, the, the way they look at you that just is so, it, it draws you in. Yeah, it's so magical to personally, you know, when you're standing in the forest, hear all these different sounds and you can, as you say, sense their presence. And obviously there's also the wonderful group, the Sherbrooke Lyrebird Study Group, who's featured throughout the film. So many enthusiasts there and they're so engaging. Their eyes light up, their faces light up. They're so excited but at the prospect of finding lyrebirds and, and marking where they are in the territory, citizen scientists who just really love at a deep level um, lyrebirds. So they're, it really watching them get excited about lyrebirds is quite infectious. So um, it's a really joyful thing to see. Uh, uh, it's not just, uh, you know, it's it's so widespread in the community as well. I was in the Sherbrooke Forest last year working on another David Attenborough show, which Anna was also involved in. Uh, and the number of people that were in that forest, lockdown had just ended, uh, the first lockdown in Melbourne had just ended, and the forest was just full of people who'd come to see the lyrebirds. Uh, and if you, you know, if, if you're on a street uh, and I think and you stop to ask passers-by, everyone seems to have a lyrebird story or, or very mm. interested in lyrebirds. There's something about them which is just really enthralling. Mm, absolutely. Anastasia, what about you? Do you have a similar experience? I think Nick puts it extremely well, very poetically. I'm not sure I can add much to that. Um, but to just speak to my my own story, um, I've been interested in sound for a long time, um, starting off as a musician and, and then making a few forays into the science of birdsong. And someone suggested I work on lyrebirds and that was so exciting. That was, it's like being offered the holy grail, <laughs> the opportunity to go out and, and spend so much time listening to them and, and really diving deep into what, what they're singing and why they might be singing it, how they sing it. And up until that point I'd had fleeting glimpses of lyrebirds. Um, they certainly captured in my imagination but I hadn't had so much experience with them. I grew up in in sort of the, the, the grassy plains of um, grassy woodlands of Canberra and lyrebirds were a very special treat that we planned for in, in school holidays and things. So then to have an opportunity to study them 
to spend three winters with the lyrebirds um, was amazing. It was such a great privilege. And I think Nick puts it really well. It's not just their song, which is extremely exciting. And every time I hear it, I just feel, I feel joy. <laughs> I feel this great sense of joy and um, happiness and, and calm. But it's not just their song. They really have this big presence. They do such odd and funny things and their lives are, are so intricate and serious and, and you can even hear them sort of walking through the forest. If a live bird is there, the forest is, is a different place, I think. Mm. So, yes, I, I, I agree very much with what both of you have said. They are extremely special animals. And from the perspective of someone who's studying the lyrebirds in depth and and really observing them very, very carefully and uh, clearly sound recordings would be part of that work. But what does a scientist who is studying and observing different species of lyrebird do in Australia? How What kind of things does it make you think about and um, how do you actually engage with them on the ground? Because as we see in the film, there is this kind of necessity to keep a distance. Yes. So the first thing we set out to do was to really understand what they were singing, um, when they uh, sang different things, and and then get at the question of of why. And that that very first question turned out to be a lot more complicated than we had ever suspected. Um, But to do that, we're we're going into their world, into their forest. So we gear up with uh, our winter clothes because they sing in the middle of winter when it's really cold and wet there's lots of leeches and things around we try and find clothes that aren't too noisy um and then we we get very muddy and we carry carry lots of equipment so we record them um but we can only record them if they let us so i think it's a testament um to the public who visit Sherbrooke Forest so much that those lyrebirds, um, most of them are reasonably happy to have us around as long as we don't get too close, that they've become used to humans. They know that we're, um, we're no threat to them. Um, and they also know that we make terrible lyrebirds because what we're, we're doing is we're entering their forest, we're following them around, we're climbing over logs, we're going around the corners, um, and they can just happily skip through the forest. They can fly up the hill if they hear somebody exciting singing up the hill. And uh, it's really hard work. I really, there's so many times, I'm sure Nick feels the same. I just wished I was a lyrebird. I could just you know, float up the hill to follow that, that singing voice to see what was happening in that big ruckus up the hill. Yeah, it must be really challenging and physical work. And Nick, Similarly with you and and cinematography and trying to capture the lyrebird and its natural behaviour in the wild, like no doubt that would be quite a challenge and have its own considerations from your perspective. I think the challenges are very similar to what Anna was talking about because the the lyrebirds tend to live in the forest, which which is quite thick and often very hilly. So you've got to move around the forest with what is a heavy camera and tripod and all your bits of gear in an environment where it's probably raining and it's everything's slippery and, and muddy. Uh, and the, the lyrebird, as Anna said, you can be, it can go down to one spot and maybe it's dancing on a stick or on a mound or calling and you you plod your way over trees and crawling over things of your gear and slipping on some mud and you get there. And then it decides to run 200 metres up the hill. So you've 
you've got to follow it then up the hill. Uh, it can move up and through its environment in a flash, uh, and you stumble around the environment very, very slowly, getting exhausted with with you know thick vegetation. You've got to navigate through huge logs to climb over mud, uh, and then it's wet. Fortunately, um, the the cold is dissipated because you tend to be sweating carrying all the gear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that's part of the problem too. When you stop to get to a lyre bird and it's and it's singing, sometimes on the recordings you can hear my breath goes <sighs> as, as I'm catching my breath and try not to breathe too heavily so the mic's not picking it up. Uh, but but it is such also a beautiful environment in the forest because you know it'll, the the wetness of it, it it shimmers with with the water on it, uh, and then when the sun comes out that sometimes the water and the vegetation just starts evaporating and there's like this, it's like a fire of burning mist coming off the vegetation. So even though it's cold and miserable, the, the, the moisture of the forest uh, and the winter sun, it, it still gives it a, a, a certain ethereal glow that's really beautiful. Mm, and it does come through in those shots that you do film. You know, there are there's even a point I remember a shot where the lyrebird was singing and you could see the kind of its breath in the air because it was such a kind of frosty morning. Yeah, that's very common because it's always cold because it's winter when they do uh, the breeding season when the males are displaying and calling and it's always in a cold, dark, uh, cold, dark forest, not in a warm, warm, sunny spot. Uh, So, yeah, it's very common to see the lyrebird's breath coming out like that. Probably lucky, Anastasia, that you grew up in Canberra and are used to the freezing cold. <laughs> it may have helped, but uh, yeah. it's, uh, it's a lot wetter in these forests. Yeah. Um, but one thing I would add to Nick's wonderful description is that the sound of the forest is incredible, the acoustics as well. So you have these really big old eucalypts um, with uh, very, very hard surfaces and the lyrebird's voice just bounces off those the trunks of the trees and they just echo you just have this whole forest full of singing birds so despite the the physical hardships and um not not being a lyre bird moving through these forests the, the reward when you get to hear those sounds and, and see their dances is incredible and it's, it's totally worth it mm. oh Very absolutely so. yeah. well nick i i wanted to touch on what you discuss at the beginning of the film because it sets up the film really and it's something that I know uh, when I talked about this documentary I think a lot of people would have remembered a certain video um, from a documentary by David Attenborough which you were involved in The Life of Birds and they'll recall seeing a lyrebird do some particularly surprising sounds that were related to human sounds. So I wonder, could you share with us what did, as you say, spark your ideas and thoughts and and spur you and the rest of your cast members and production members on to actually do this film? Well, well, back in the, the 1990s, I got a request from... The Life of Birds team, uh, they they wanted to film lyrebirds mimicking chainsaws and various other sounds. Now, at that point, I, I wasn't very knowledgeable about lyrebirds and much more knowledgeable now. Uh, and uh, so I was just employed as a cameraman. Uh, and they said that um, they uh, they said that this was a common behaviour that occurred with lyrebirds in the wild, uh, but they, they couldn't find a location in the wild for me to film it at. 
So they sent me to Hillsville Sanctuary. Uh, so that that clip, which some people might know about, it it um, uh, you know it, it, it's uh, was voted by the British public as their favourite atom of moment for his 80th birthday, uh, and it's had about 20 million hits on YouTube. So it's it's very very popular, and a lot of people have seen it. Uh, but what I learnt after doing that is actually no one's ever ever recorded a wild lyre bird mimicking a chainsaw. Uh, and um, to this date, I've never heard a recording. No one's ever showed me a recording. Uh, plenty of people have said they've heard it. Uh, so what really concerned me was that the BBC had got me to film something which was inaccurate or untruthful. Uh, and so I, the, the sort of my initial motivation for doing working on this film was to see if lyrebirds did actually mimic sounds of chainsaws or maybe other human sounds. Mm. Well, I mean, it is something that I've seen and had seen already. And um, and at the beginning, I wasn't aware that it was a, a captive, like bred in cap- captivity, lyrebird called Nova, um, I, who was – and it's really great that obviously there is um, Heelsville in the sense that there are – uh, lyrebirds that people can see up close, um, but obviously their conditions and environment is very, very different to a wild lyrebird. So, Anastasia, could you explain to us, you know, those really essential differences between the lyrebirds that are grow up in captivity and who they learn from, and then uh, how it's very different in the wild because of obviously the way that lyrebirds learn their songs. Yeah, so that's a good question. So if you go to Hillsville and you hear their lyrebird, he is fantastic, the lyrebird, so he's a wonderful mimic, but he's mimicking the sounds of the zoo. So you can hear him mimic some extraordinary sounds of like arid bird um, arid bird calls and like I think there's a, a bushstone curlew call that he imitates, which is, is pretty amazing. But in the wild... Uh, male lyrebirds uh, learn to mimic things that are around them. So it's, these are, are birds and occasionally some mammals that live in the forest, in the wet forest of his habitat in southeast Australia. But there seems to very, be a very strong component of social learning. So that means that they seem to listen to each other and they mimic the sounds that all the other males mimic too. And you can reel off uh, a list of favourite sounds of um, the best hits of superb lyrebirds, and it tends to be rather similar uh, throughout throughout their range. That's from Victoria right up to the Queensland-New South Wales border. So they really like to imitate yellowtail black cockatoos. Um, they're particularly fond of imitating kookaburras. They like to imitate uh, crimson rosellas, um, king parrots, um, and particularly eastern whipbirds, they really like those ones. So you can be, uh, you can predict what they're going to Im- imitate. But it's mainly birds. It's mainly other species of birds with which they share their environment. Well, it's something that I certainly um, noticed, but had no clue of when I was in the forest 
myself is that I actually recorded the sound because I thought it was so stunning and beautiful on my iPhone um, and then took it to a person I was interviewing about birds and said, what do you think about this recording? And they initially said, oh, it's a whip bird. Um, and then they actually clarified, said, no, 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 that's a lyre bird imitating a whip bird, which really, you know, st- sparked my imagination that you could possibly have such a, you know, impressive mimic that you honestly could barely tell. So how do you then tell when you're um, in the forest? What are the kind of giveaways that um, that the mimic is not actually the bird itself? <laughs> There's a couple of giveaways, but uh, the big giveaway that you're listening to a lyrebird and um, not to the birds they're imitating is that the lyrebird will string together imitations of lots of different species in a row. And they do so quite quickly. So you start to hear a kookaburra, then you hear a golden whistler, then you hear a grey shrike thrush and an eastern whipbird and a crimson rosella in quick succession, just in under 20 seconds. And then the next giveaway is it's usually coming from the ground because lyrebirds spend most of their time on the ground, whereas most of the birds that they're imitating are found in the middle story of the forest or really right at the top in the canopy. So that's another giveaway. And then I think most people will say that the third one is uh, difficult to pin down. In fact, it hasn't been pinned down. But you, there's a certain lyrebird-esque voice. You can, once you get your ear in, you just hear it and it, it sounds like a lyrebird. And we don't quite know what that is. We've got a, a few clues to how their imitations are, are different from the birds they they're copying, uh, but there is some, uh, the musicians would call it a tombra, I guess, some essential lyrebirdness to their voice, which you can hear as well. Mm, which I'm gathering the more you hear, you'll get attuned to that timbre that you can hear, the, the quality of the voice. Yes, I think that's probably true. Now, I've got some sound clips which Mark, the director, has kindly shared with me. So I'm going to try this out, see if it works live on radio um, and play one of the clips that has a kind of mixture of these sounds, these different calls um, in succession, as you say, from the lyrebird that's taken from the film. So uh, we're going to come back to you all once I've just played this short clip um, to illustrate some of what we're just talking about now.
So there we've just heard a little bit of some of that um, ambient sound from a lyrebird and uh, it's clearly really varied and there's some wonderful calls in there. I don't think there's a kookaburra in that particular clip, but it does, as we can tell, and as Anastasia's just said, move through different calls very, very quickly. So we probably heard in that clip about, I don't know, 10 or 12 different bird calls. Um, Anastasia, towards the end of that clip, we heard some like click clicking and some interesting mechanical sounds that are like pew, pew, pew. Like what are these sounds, particularly because they sound so curious to us and in that way they don't remind me of a certain, you know, type of bird. Is that something that's quite unique to the lyrebird, those end sounds that we were hearing that sounded a little bit mechanical and clicky? Yes, yeah, so it's true that lyrebird, as well as being an amazing mimic, also has its own repertoire of extraordinary lyrebird-specific sounds that um, that are unique to themselves. So they have this wonderful song and dance display that they perform for females um, right before mating. That's a really crucial uh, performance for them, and it's it's like nothing on earth, really. Those sounds. The um, they start off with this extraordinary almost like a laser game, a 1980s laser arcade game sound. Uh, And that's the beginning of their dance. And they have um, particular dance movements that go with that one. So they walk to the side when they're doing that song. And then they have this extremely loud, repetitive sound, sort of a zonk, zonk, um, uh, followed by a very quiet plinkety, plinkety, plinkety. And they jump when they do those plinketies at the same time. and then they cycle through this a number of times for the female uh, just before mating. And this, yeah, so it's an extraordinary sound. And then they have these rather elaborate dance movements that go with it. Um, and that's uh, rather unique in the bird world to do that, uh, coordinate their song with their dance like that. Yeah, I loved that part of the, the film where uh, you were really talking about the fact that there is almost a competition as well about who's doing the dance well and accurately and that not all males will uh, do the dance in the same way and some of them might, you know, make a few mistakes. And um, it seems like that's part of the way to win the female in terms of um, copulation and mating. Oh, I think it's essential. Mm. Uh, so by the time the, a male um, is reaches adulthood when he's about seven or eight years old and he's got his own territory if he's lucky and he's even managed to persuade a female to come and at least check him out, uh, then his, his dance has got to be very good if he's going to get any further. But the young males are terrible. You see them almost tripping over themselves and matching them <laughs> the wrong song with the long, wrong dance. But they have, they have about seven years to practice and they do spend a lot of time practicing. <laughs> Yeah, and it's interesting that age gap as well um, in terms of the females and when they're ready for mating versus when the males are and they've grown those magnificent feathers, which we haven't even got to yet as well. So what are the feathers doing um, in the males at the same time in this dance? So when there's a female, the the male, he um, will flip his tail over his head. Yeah, so when they're walking around the forest in this complicated forest full of vines and spiky things and um, lots of undergrowth. They they keep their tails folded behind them and they can be quite camouflaged, the males. But once they're in full display, they flip the tail over their head so that the, the bright colours underneath the tail are, are displayed and it looks rather like a veil in the males. So you've got all these lacy filamentary feathers, we call them, 
um, and then the stripy lyrates to the side and then two thin wires up the top. And it looks like they're wearing a veil. And so they show that off to the female when they're doing their performance. Um, and, and then certain times they will shake them and they have this beautiful sort of shimmery waterfall-like movement in the dance. And then just before mating, actually, they put the tail over the top of the female as well. They stand behind her. So she's in amongst the tail feathers too during the latter part of the dance. Mm, and during this whole time, um, there is a, a kind of mound, like a platform that the male is dancing on and standing ha- that has cleared, I guess, a path in the forest and created this mound of, uh, you know, leaf litter and, and soil to, I guess, draw the attention of the female as well, not just the sound, but also creating that space for the female to come into its circle or orbit. Yeah, so they the males spend quite a lot of their time during the breeding season creating um, these display mounds, which are a little like uh, they're a dancing platform, basically. They're not very big. Uh, they're circular, so they're only about one to two metres in diameter. They're quite small. And they're usually almost always uh, placed amongst very tall undergrowth. So it's a cleared spot on the forest floor, but immediately surround it is this sort of wall of vegetation. So if the female actually wants to see the male dancing, she has to get onto these mounds and there's hardly any room for these two birds. So they're right there together. It's very intimate. It's a little bit like being, I don't, I don't know, in a very small theatre round, I suppose. Mm. You're, it's right there. Um, and she has to be there if she wants to see him. So it's it's very intimate space and it's it's um, it's extraordinary. But it's also the the dark ground, um, the dark floor of these display platforms, um, really shows off the whiteness and the brightness of the male's tail. And we we're starting to wonder whether it's actually a very um, full-on experience for the female because she has these big dark eyes. She spends most of her time staring at the dark ground to try and get worms for to to eat. That's what they eat. So that's probably extremely sensitive to light. And then suddenly she's in this open platform, often with the light coming down, and she's got this bright white of the male's tail against the dark floor of the um, of the display platform. So I think it's a very the visual experience is pretty full on for her as well as the song and the dance. Mm, it's a dramatic thing to see, and thankfully we do get to see it in this film. So Nick, I'll bring you in in just a second, but before I bring Nick in, I did want to ask about the female and. Uh, it is brought up in the film that they are quite discerning when they're uh, taking part in that um, before copulation and deciding whether they do actually choose that particular male. So it seems that there is this uh, power dynamic or imbalance, I guess, in the sense that the females don't necessarily need to go with the first male they see. In fact, that they are quite discerning in, in who they choose. Yes, we know that before a female mates, you will visit she can visit several different males. She goes up to one, he does his dance, and then she leaves. And then she'll go on to his neighbour and you know, he can hear that. He knows that he's been rejected and she's moved <laughs> on to his neighbour. Um, and we think that actually very few individual males get any matings at all and there'll just be one or two who get all of them who are the, who are the best in the area. So, yes, a female seems to hold the power there. Yep. Well, it's nice to hear. I like to hear about that. And, Nick, um, 
being a cinematographer, especially a wildlife cinematographer, and obviously this film, there are quite a few scenes where we get to see the dancers uh, playing out um, and also a female coming along. Sometimes we see um, the male by themselves and sometimes we see the female coming into that circle. So how do you... Um, and how did you, as a cinematographer, manage to capture some of those very intimate, very dramatic scenes without, uh, I guess, announcing your presence and uh, in- and interfering or, and missing out on on that really special thing that clearly not many people would get a chance to see if we didn't see this film or we weren't in the field like Anastasia is? Well, the, I think Anastasia touched on this before. The, the key is really... The lyrebird has to allow you to do it, uh, so you you need to find lyrebirds that that don't they the lyrebirds that don't see you as a threat. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that they befriend you, but you're in the forest as if you're a wallaby or a, or a, <laughs> an inert object. You know they that they don't give you any regard. You're just mm-hmm. in the forest. They don't mind you following them around. You're, you're sort of irrelevant to them. Uh, and you need to find a lyrebird that that allows you to do that. That that's the key. Uh, and there's a couple of star lyrebirds in the film. Uh, there was Mr. G. Uh, they tend to have names. The lyrebirds who you get to know well, and Mr. Bennett. Uh, Mr. Bennett was one that I named, but Mr. G is a very famous lyrebird that's passed away. Uh, and he lived in the Sherbrooke Forest. And Mr. Bennett lived. Um, he lived um, up near Alinda in the Dandenong Ranges, and both those lyrebirds sadly passed away. They lived for about, um, they can live up to 30 years, I think that's correct. So it's, they're quite long-lived, but those two must have been quite elderly. Uh, 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 and the thing about the birds is even though they don't mind you being there, you still have to move through the forest in a very quiet way. Uh, so if you step on, an, on, a, on a branch or a twig, uh, and crack the twig, they'll go off the mound and go away. Uh, and you almost don't, you almost don't, when they're on the mound, you really can't really approach them. So the, the better technique is to have a bit of understanding of how they use the environment and position yourself near the mound so that they can come to the mound where you're already there and you're not moving towards them because even though these birds are quite tame they're, they're happy to have you with them uh there is still a few if you make a, a noise like crackling a, a, a twig they'll run off uh and if you do that you get to have a wonderful experience because the, the trick then is to get down low so you're not standing above them you're down low on the ground in the nice wet mud getting very muddy and wet and cold and then hopefully the live bird will come to the mound that you think it's going to come to and you can get those really intimate pictures of looking up at the lyrebird. Uh, so it's it's sort of standing on his mound above you almost. Uh, and then also you'll see that veil come if you're if you're in the right position. You'll see the veil come over his head and shimmer in front of his eyes. So you're almost looking through the veil at the lyrebird's face, uh, and that's a unique experience. And it 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 does take a lot of time because you can spend a whole day in the forest of the lyrebirds and get nothing that's particularly useful. Uh, and even if you do get some really nice footage, uh, it it can take many days to collect that nice footage because you've got to have all the elements together right. You've got to be at the mound, the right mound that he's going to go to. 
you've got to make sure that you don't step on a twig and scare him off, uh, and you've got to move through the forest in a very careful way that's not disturbing the birds. That's so interesting and really wonderful to visualise. And it is interesting also that there is that set period of about five months where they're in that active phase. So in in terms of actually filming this film and the cinematography involved, like how many field days and hours does it take or is it in totally incalculable to think of all the days that you spent out there in the field uh, trying to capture them? Well, I do have a diary, so I could actually count the days up. Uh, but but I I I join the the crowd of uh, people who become obsessed by lyrebirds. Uh, and there was one winter when I was filming that. So the lyrebird season starts probably mid June, uh, and you can film them up to up to August. You know, maybe early August, right, right about that time. There's obviously it's it gets that they're more intense in the middle of the of that time, but that they'll be active through that whole time. Uh, and for the for the first, we worked in the film for a couple of years, uh, and in the first year of doing the film, I, I went to the forest every day I could. I I, I was a single dad and I had kids, uh, so I tended to have the weekends at home with the kids. Uh, but the kids were a little bit older, so I would leave at dawn. Uh, I was living in Melbourne and I'd drive up to the Dandenong Ranges, spend the whole day there, uh, and then come back and cook the kids' dinner. And I did that wow. for every day during that season apart from the weekends. I didn't miss a single day. I I even gave up work. So I, <laughs> I, with this film, uh, it's, a, it's a film of love and nobody was paying me to go into the forest to do it. Uh, and uh, I actually turned away all my paid jobs so I could go into the forest. I became completely obsessed. Uh, and that shows in the footage because it, it takes a lot of time uh, to get the really nice footage. You don't get it quickly. Uh, and you also, to do it in a way where you don't upset the birds or disturb the birds, which, I mean, if you didn't disturb them, if the, you, you can only do what the birds allow you to do. And that takes a lot of patience and quietness. You could be very quiet in the forest and move carefully. Uh, so, so there, so there was a lot of time and effort put into into producing the images that go along with the with the film. Mm, you're right. It absolutely does show, and that's why I loved watching it and then replaying bits just so I could enjoy it again. Um, and I think it is really lovely to watch the dancers and that kind of. Uh, pre-mating behaviour and courting behaviour. So I'm going to just play a 30-second clip, which is from the film, that has those dancing sounds that Anastasia described earlier. So we're just going to hear that and we'll be back. We just heard there a short example of that wonderful dance that hopefully you can get to see when we see this film. Um, and I think Anastasia's done a phenomenal job in explaining exactly what it looks like uh, in terms of those dance movements. But Anastasia, in the film um, and Nick, of course, there are so many different 
types of song and they have different purposes, it seems, and they also occur at different times. So um, you do talk about sub-song and also, um, you know, the display songs. So I wonder, could you just take us through some of the differences um, that we might hear at different times in terms of the songs that lyrebirds would decide to mimic and um, engage with? Sure. So if you go into the forest when the lyrebirds are singing in the middle of winter and you want to listen to the males, you're most likely to hear what we call the recital song. So this is what we think of when we think of lyrebirds singing. This is when they mimic all those different birds in quick succession. It's very loud. Um, when the lyrebird is singing these, uh, producing the recital song, he's usually perched. Um, it can be in a tree, which is quite a, a funny sight. We don't really think of lyrebirds sort of sitting in the tree like a, like a robin or something that's perched and, and singing, but that's what they do. But sometimes a perch is just this tiny little fallen over stick that's on the ground and they still sort of wander over to the stick, sit on their perch and then produce this recital song. Um, but it's also the, the main part of their dawn chorus. So if you get up before dawn and you hear them at the tops of the trees where they've spent the night roosting, they start off with this recital song. So most of it is mimicry, but then um, every now and then they produce their own, um, we call it the... We call it the whistle song, which is this lyrical, long, um, often ringing and echoey song that they sing in amongst the mimicry. And it's interesting that they do mimic those animals that they see around the forest as well um, at different times. So I know it was mentioned that there were yellow-bellied gliders, for example, and wild cats. So it's you know interesting the types of sounds they seem to pick up in the forest, not just uh, other birds. Not other birds, but they tend to have these rules about what you mimic and when. Mm. So they have this sort of set about about 20 to 25 different species of bird that they sing during the recital song. But then occasionally, occasionally when they're wandering around the ground, um, they're foraging a bit. Um, they might have seen a female and start to sort of sing to her a little bit just on the ground um, in an unstructured way. And that's when they can produce what we refer to as sub-songs. So it's very quiet, sort of whispery um, and it's bizarre what they put into the subsong. It can be that's when I've heard them imitate yellow belly gliders, uh, funny crackling songs, um, sort of the non-preferred model species, like they'll mimic soft crested cockatoos in very occasionally, all sorts of funny things. It's all very quiet and they're sort of following the female around while she's very busy and she doesn't want to pay him much attention. And it's very quiet and the rules for that seem to be quite fluid and, yeah, lots of funny things are imitated then. Yeah, and then... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, and then, of course, we've already talked about the dance song, which is highly structured. We have the first lyrebird song, the lasers, and we have the loud zonks and the quiet plinkities, and that's that's highly structured. And at the end of that, there's um, another uh, lot of mimicry, but that's a completely different set of mimicry once again. That's mimicry of alarm calls. So other birds' alarm calls, when the calls they give uh, when they see a snake, um, and occasionally some sound imitations of some possums too in that set. So you've got all these different sets of mimicry that have different uh, meanings or different different functions at different stages of their their performance. I'm glad you mentioned that because it was interesting to hear about that deceptiveness that you mentioned in the film, the deception of the males um, to make those 
those sounds, um, the mixed species mobbing flock to imitate danger as well. Yes. Yeah. So we, we looked at those sounds at the end of their dance and yeah, we realized it wasn't just the lyrebirds imitating some alarm calls. They actually put them together. They curate the sounds um, as though it's a flock of mobbing species. So a whole lot of birds come in and they mob a snake that they see. Um, and yeah, they produce this very distinctive um chorus, mobbing flock chorus, and that's what the lyrebird's mimicking at that stage. And we think it's to deceive the female because all this is happening on the mound. And remember, um, the description of the mound is that it's quite intimate. You've got the cleared floor where she's standing, where the male is performing for her, but then around it she's faced with this wall of vegetation and you can't see very far in that at all, especially when you're the height of a lyrebird. So the male is creating this illusion of danger that's just outside her vision. She doesn't know where that snake might be in the, the long undergrowth. And we think that's a way of saying, um, stay here with me where it's safe, you can see the ground and there's another bird here, don't go out in the, in the long um, undergrowth where this snake or other quoll or predator is hanging around. Stay here with me and um, I have more of a chance to, to persuade you to that I'm the one to father your young. <laughs> it's really, really fascinating to to watch and hear about. Um, Nick, you, as we've discussed, you know, posed that question about the types of song and whether lyrebirds pick up non-natural uh, songs in the sense of they're not a greater glider, they're not a fox, they're not another bird, um, are they chainsaws? Are they uh, human-made noises from logging trucks? Are they uh, a flute call, for example? Um, and we do see another expert or many experts throughout the film say, well, either I haven't heard a lyrebird in the wild make those types of sounds that would only come from a human source. And some who've said, well, absolutely, I have heard um a certain lyrebird in this spot make that particular sound and I'm pretty sure of it. And so I was really interested to hear of Carol Probitz, who's a birding guide and a lyrebird sound recordist, tell a story about the flute and a lyrebird that was um, held many, many, many years ago in Armadale, New South Wales as a pet and how, you know, she heard and recorded this kind of flute call that she, that was really, I guess, surprising to her because she also believed that there was really only wild lyrebird sounds and, and that other sounds that could have been from human influence um, weren't present in, in the field when she's out recording. Um, so I thought I'd just play that flute call, which is only about 10 seconds, so that people can hear a different kind of call to the ones we've been talking about. Um, and then we can, you know, discuss the crux of this film as well that we've kind of been leading into and talking about in different ways. So we'll just hear that flute call now. There we go. So we just heard a scale, a uh, musical scale, I guess you could say, that was very layered and quite, you know, interesting, a little bit discordant. Um, so could you tell us about this 
um, flute call, but also what it represents, I guess, in the film in terms of this ongoing debate and uh, discussion amongst Lyrebird enthusiasts and scientists and uh, filmmakers about, you know, what we're hearing in the forest and whether Lyrebirds are picking up sounds around them that are from humans. So I think, um, you know, Anastasia can talk more about the flute call, but that, that's a classic example because uh, not on a scientific level but on a sort of a as an observer, people are very keen to hear the lyrebirds mimic human sounds back to them. Uh, and so, you know, you might listen to that flute call and say that it's a scales or or the gypsy dance of a of a kid that played the flute, you know, back in the 30s. Uh, and science can debate that. Uh, but regardless of science, the humans will hear in that sound what they want to hear. And, and it's the same with the lyrebirds. They'll hear those dancing sounds, the mechanical types of sounds, and they'll they'll hear a chainsaw uh, or whatever sound they want to hear coming back to them. Uh, and it's you know it's very interesting that there's something about the human psyche that wants to hear a lyrebird mimicking human sounds back to us. Uh, and I think it's a form of arrogance because the lyrebirds themselves, the sounds that they make from the forest, are, are beautiful, and, and they're recreating the whole forest, the whole gambit of sounds from the forest. And even to the extent, you know, I live in Tassie now, and I was just uh, down south in Tasmania, and we went to a forest that had been clearfelled, and there was a male lyrebird who must have lived in that forest when it was still a big old-growth forest, he was singing the sounds of the forest. He was recreating the soundscape of that forest for us. And, and really, as humans, it's what we're missing in our lives is the sound of, this, uh, of the forest and all the birds around us. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I don't quite understand why there's this need to find human sounds um, from nature, this huge desire. But, but Anna can probably talk more about the... The, the science too of the, of the flute call. Mm, thank you, Nick. Yes, go ahead, Anastasia. Oh, I have to say this is not uh, that it's not my work, um, but there's a, a, a group of um, hardworking recorders and scientists who've been studying this story that the particular they call it the flute song um, in the New England region uh, originated from a copy, one male copying the sound. Um, of a child playing the flute. And they've investigated this story in some detail. Um, I, they've wavered, I think, in the course of their investigation, whether or not it's imitation of the flute or whether it's its lyrebird-owned specific song. Um, and I think last I heard they were coming around to the belief that perhaps it was the lyrebird's own song. And like Nick said, uh, for a long time, human listeners have been hearing a flute because it, it does sound a little bit flute-like. It's a very, uh, each individual note is, is uh, clear um, and light and, and it's quick. It's a very quick-noted so uh, quick song, if you like. Um, but it seems to be rather similar to what we call the whistle song um, that lyrebirds sing in, the male lyrebirds sing in every part of their range uh, that we've recorded so far. It's just that it's their own song and it varies so much from place to place and it just so happens that the particular variants around the New England area uh, 
have this incredible flute-like sound. Mm. So what what kind of position do you come to individually um, and within your lab um, when you're studying lyrebirds, when you've looked at your own and listened to your own sound recordings um, and you yourself, Nick, have you come to, uh, I guess, temporary conclusion about what you think the answer is or is it still really open? What are your thoughts on it? Well, I've never, uh, I've never been played a recording uh, that someone's made that convinces me personally that it's a lyrebird mimicking a sound of human origin. Uh, but the, the film has, uh, you'll have to wait to see the film, the audience. I'll have to go to Hills on the 12 to watch it if they can get there. Uh, but the film does have something that I filmed uh, which, which probably answers that question definitively. But what we can say, and, and again, Anna can talk more about this, it, it, if live birds do mimic sounds of human origin, it's extremely rare. Uh, and it's not part of normal lyrebird behaviour. And it, uh, it seems more like an, a, a, an aberration to normal behaviour. Mm. Do you want to jump in there, Anna, as well? Oh, yes, I can. Uh, yeah, so we've got thousands of hours of recordings um, taken from multiple places around Australia of lyrebirds, and we've never recorded... Um, a lyrebird mim mimicking a sound of human origin. The closest we've got, the weirdest sound that we've recorded um, is from a female superb lyrebird mimicking what we think is the sound of two tree trunks rubbing together in the higher winds. It's sort of a squeaky sound, extraordinary sound. Um, a bit scary because trees fall over when it's very windy. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's the, that's the strangest thing that we've recorded. And, well, I've, I'm hoping that everyone gets to see this film, whether they're uh, whether it's on the 12th or another time, and I certainly will tell people uh, when there are other screenings. Um, but it, it is really funny to watch your reactions to what Nick was saying, the footage that he um, that he filmed, because I found myself having similar facial reactions to yours um, <laughs> and just loved that that point, the climactic moment in the film. So, um, yeah, it, it's really great that there is this ongoing um examination and recording and you know observation of lyrebirds so that we can actually understand them better but as you say to not necessarily bring in um human or anthropocentric views about uh what a lyrebird is doing because clearly you know the message from traditional owners uh in the film as well as from yourselves is that um, these lyrebirds um, are doing their own thing and it's often humans that are mimicking lyrebirds. Um, for example, the lyrebird dance um, from the traditional Darawal peoples of the lyrebird uh, really loved that part of the film as well and um, the kind of elements of human culture, our ancient culture here from First Nations peoples. So it's really great to see that cultural and spiritual element weaved throughout the film and, uh, yeah, I want to say a big thank you to both of you for taking the time to share your passion and knowledge uh, and experience of lyrebirds with us. I hope that we've really sparked people off on their own passion, potentially, uh, of lyrebirds. And, um, yeah, thanks and congratulations to you all on this wonderful film, The Message of Lyrebirds. Oh, thanks, thank you Amy. for having us. Yeah, thank, thank you for you. having us. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. And now I'm really, really pleased to get to take you to another space with artist and writer Georgia Mill. She's joining me now to talk about her new podcast, A Fluorescent Feeling, which has been out through Broadwave and the first episode of which is released today. And it is a podcast series, a three-part series about chronic pain, our bodies and how we talk about them and live inside them. And obviously so many different themes do come up in this podcast, including uh, issues of sexuality and intimacy, um, experiences of chronic illness and disability, 